Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 27. Michael's getting ready here, and uh, well, he's getting ready and taking some deep breaths. Um, Paul, who we're going to read about here, writes to one of his apprentices, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. And in the middle of that verse says, devote yourself to the public reading of God's word. And so that's why we do this. And, and you're like, we do this every week. Why are you saying this here? Um, because we're going to do it for about seven to ten minutes worth of public reading, all right? And uh, because we're going to cover a chapter and a half. And it is good and right for us to do this. Uh, and so I just wanted to, to give that caveat. Michael, he, might, he may even act out some of this. I don't know. Uh, we've given him some liberty. Uh, but we want to read the scriptures. We're not going to ask you to stand for all of that time. Uh, but, but peer in. It'll be on the screen uh, behind Michael. Uh, but also look into the word that's, that's probably there on your lap as well. Michael, take it away. All right, as, as Kyle said, I invite you to open up to Acts 27. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 1. Uh, you can follow in your Bible or on the screen behind me. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Norether struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. 
So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all, in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on the pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putili. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. 
Thanks, Michael. So Keith, put up, uh, put up the map for me if we can. So yeah, we just covered a lot of ground, and that is what we just read. So this is going to serve as my backdrop for uh, most of this, this teaching. Um, but I want to I I start by talking about something we, we all learned at a very early age, and it was this. That the straightest, right, the, the shortest distance between two points is what? A straight line, right? And some of you, you know, you're going, hold on, hold on. You math teachers, maybe you engineers are going, wait, wait, wait a minute. Not always true, right? Like that, that is true, but not always true. In fact, the shortest distance, what does it depend on? It depends on the geometry of the object. What you just say, stated is true if it's a 2D object, but what if it's a sphere? What if it's a circle, right? And you get, like, I can compute A squared plus B squared equals C squared, right? Like my mind, my non-mathematical mind. But then you get into uh, formulas like this, and how many of you are like, don't, please, Kyle, I'm having hot flashes right now. Please stop, okay? Like, get, get that off the screen, okay? Like, don't. Like, that is the formula for life, right? That is Paul's journey to Rome. What we really want, let's be honest, in our lives is a straight-line life. From point A to point B. All these curves, all these detours, all these storms, I could do less with those. You see, but we know if you live life more than seven years, probably, you know that there's nothing in life that is a straight line. I mean, I can't literally even go to the restroom from here without taking a turn, okay? I can't go home in a straight line. I can't do anything in life that's a straight line. You see, the reality of our life and the geometry of life, we would like to think it as two-dimensional, but it's not. Even as we look here at Paul's journey to Rome, we see God teaching us and showing us something very important about life. That it's the mountains, the valleys, the deserts, the oceans that actually give life texture. True? He said, some of you are like, I would like a little less texture in my life right now. But we like this in general, right? Think about movies that you see. Think about how boring a movie would be if you're like, oh, superhero villain defeats villain. Oh, whoo, 10 minutes, right? I paid 20 bucks in a theater I used to go to, right, to watch that. None of you would watch that. Even the reality TV shows insert these kind of twists and right? HGTV, okay? Can't stand it, but I know the premise of all the shows, right? They show some rehab project. They tear down some wall, and what's in it? Always black mold. Oh, what are we going to do? What you always do, Right? Fix it and repair it and go on and the house is more beautiful than mine is, right? So, okay, I get it, right? That's the story. You see, we come to this trip with Paul. And we have been on a long journey with Paul as we've walked through the book of Acts. This trip, in a given ordinary time, would take between five and six weeks to go from Caesarea down here in my right all the way up there to Rome. Five to six weeks. But what Michael just read is about six months worth of travel. Six months worth of hardship taking place over this chapter and a half. Why? Why would Luke, the author of Acts, spend so much real estate describing this journey? Right? We're, we're dealing with parchment here. Luke couldn't go, oh yeah, I just need to run down to Staples and get some more paper. Like, no, it, it, there was a certain amount of real estate that Luke had to write on. Why include a chapter and a half of this travel log? Well, let's think back. 
to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Paul's still in prison in Jerusalem. And we walked through that and we talked through that and we talked through that. In Jesus, in that last scene in verse 11, he shows up and what does he say to Paul? After a very discouraging time for Paul, the following night, the Lord, Jesus, stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. Paul, you just, you just testified, you just preached the gospel here in Jerusalem. So you must testify also to the gospel in Rome. That's Jesus going, Paul, you're going to get to Rome. Making a promise to Paul, you're going to get there. You're go, you know, go back to the map. You're going to cut, you're going to get up here, all right? You're down here right now in Jerusalem. You're going to get to Rome. Now, if God made a promise to you, and it's, it's very similar to what even Holly was talking about here. If God makes a promise to you, you read a promise in scripture. What is your response, or what is your thought, at least, in what should happen next? I, I, I would reckon to think that most of us believe that the line from when God makes a promise to how he's going to fulfill that promise, we believe is going to be a straight line. Right? It's not going to be curving through all these cities that we don't know how to pronounce their names and coming down here and shipwrecking and running into a snake and having these storms and having these captors about kill us. No, we think if God makes a promise, he's our father, right? That means it's going to be from A to B in a straight line. And then we read our Bible. Or we walk through life as disciples in Jesus with the hardships and the struggles and the chaos. Like is, is, is that how we expect life to go as children of God? Right? Shouldn't life be easy, a little less valley and a little more mountaintop? You see, I think in this episode, it raises a lot of questions. What Michael just read, and Derek Thomas, he's a commentator on Acts. He says this about it. He says, if Paul was God's own appointed apostle and ambassador, sent to represent the gospel of God's own son to the highest authority on earth, and if God is the God who created and controls nature and who rules over the surging sea and when its waves mount up and stills them, that's from Psalm 89, then why did not God's kingly rule order the Mediterranean to give his ambassador a smoother passage? instead of torturing him for two weeks and then throwing him up like a half-drowned rat on the beach, right? Like, if, if God's over it all, if he's sovereign over it all, why did God choose that route for Paul to get to Rome? You see, when um, Derek Thomas said a half-drowned rat on the beach, throw him up, that sparked a thought in my mind about another prophet who was thrown up on the beach. Old Testament. Yeah, some of you, Jonah. It's a book we've walked through, right? And if you know the story of Jonah, just at a high level, Jonah was this fleeing prophet. The Lord told him, called him, go to the Ninevites. He's like, I'm not doing it. I'm not going. And then lo and behold, in the harbor was a ship. And by the way, I made this point in the sermon series that there is always a ship in the harbor to take you away from what God wants you to do, okay? Don't be like, oh, ship in the harbor. It must be God's will. I'm going, Okay. So he gets in that ship and he goes. And then what happens? A storm hits, throws him over. A big fish swallows him up, right? And then he is vomited on the shore. An unfaithful prophet running away from God. You're like, yeah, I understand why God would do that. I understand how that would, you know, work and, and operate like that. Now, listen, now we have Paul. Capital A, Apostle Paul who seemingly has done everything right, you know? Like, you open up his shirt, it's like a super, super apostle on his chest, right? Like, he's done everything right. 
But for him to get on a ship, he's a faithful prophet, right? He's not running from God's will, but he gets on a ship. It should be smooth sailing, right? Wrong. What do we just read? The same God who's over and sovereign over Jonah is sovereign over Paul, is sovereign over this trip. Now hear me. This story and what we just read, what Michael just read to us, is not an allegory. Okay? I've heard far too many sermons breaking this whole scene down. That's why I wanted to take it as a whole. Just treating it as an allegory, right? Where he gets bit by a snake and he's got it fastened. It's just like, you just got to shake your problems off like that snake. No! Okay? That's not it. What this is, this story, is a parable. A living, true parable. And the lesson of this parable is this, that God providentially rules over everything and every detail. What he just spent 10 minutes reading to us is a parable of providence. So, Kyle, didn't we just talk about providence five weeks ago? Yeah, this is part two of providence. Where we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to what? To the counsel of his will. Whose will? His will. Everything works towards that end. Luke is showing us Proverbs 21.30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Providence. Romans 8.28, a verse very familiar to you, that all things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to whose purpose? His purpose. Paul is called toward his purpose and his end. But how Paul gets to that purpose and end is totally up to God. This is an incredible journey. And so I only have two points. I did 10 a couple weeks ago, so I'm only going to do two today. Okay? So first point is this. Jesus kept his promise. Jesus kept his promise and Paul got to Rome. We read that right here in verse 11 through verse 17. But how and why did he get to Rome? Because Jesus said he would. He said, that's the church answer. No, that's exactly the reason. Because Jesus, in chapter 23, came to him and said, you will get to Rome. But I also want to note, as we'll go through the text here, how Paul took this journey. And I think this is very formative for us as disciples as, go back to the map, as our lives really mirror this. These turns and these twists, these unexpected things. What is Paul's demeanor through this? Well, look at the first one. This is in uh, chapter 27, verse uh, 21. So this is where the storm at the sea, right up front here, is probably hitting very strongly. And Paul gives them, like, advice. He's like, hey, like, we should probably not go. Like, we should probably sit back and do that. And they didn't listen to him. And he says, this is why I love Paul. Verse 21. Men, you should have listened to me. And not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Like Paul's going, listen, you didn't listen to me first, but you would have listened to me. But now here's what you need to know. That there's not going to be any loss of life on this ship. Why is Paul so calm? That's his demeanor. Why is Paul so calm through all of this, through these storms, through the shipwreck. He is calm because he is confident in the Lord. He is confident in the song that we just sang, right? They didn't have it back then, but he, he is echoing the same anthem. God, I am sure of your faithfulness. I am sure of your promises so that in this storm, in these things that I'm facing, in this snake bite, I can know that you're going to get me to Rome. 
that you're going to get us to Rome. And repeat it over and over. Look at this. He says, 20, verse 25, Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So he's going, listen, believers, non-believers in the ship, centurions, it is going to work out exactly how I have been told. Take heart. Trust. And notice Paul's not going, trust me. He's going, trust God. I have faith in God that this is going to work out exactly like he said. I don't know. I don't know the voyage plans ahead. I don't know the twists and turns and the perils that are coming ahead. But Paul, there is a calm about him. Let's think about this as a church, as disciples. Would you say within the church, there is a demeanor of calm now in our day, in our age? It's okay for you to be honest in church, okay? No. There's this angst. There's this frustration. There's, this, there's, there's this, just this disunity. I love what one pastor said. He said that the prophetic edge of the church is calm. Why is the prophetic edge of the church calm? Because we're sure of the outcome, right? We're not a people without hope. We know that in the end, as we start here and we journey in our life with all the turns and twists and triumphs and tragedies, all the mountaintops and all the valleys, we are sure that the Lord is faithful to complete his work in the end. Why? Because he's good and he's God. And so there can be a calm about us. Listen, that's not an apathy. Don't, don't, don't equate those two. Calm and apathy aren't the same. But there's a resolve. There's a steadiness. There's, there's an assurance within the people of God. That's what I see radiate through Paul in this scene. Even the soldiers, the soldiers planned on killing all the people on the ship, but they wanted to save Paul. And so they did it, right? This snake fastened to his hand. What? Paul just shakes it off, right? And I love that the people at first were like, yeah, he got what he deserved. He must be a murderer. Then he didn't, nothing happened to him. And they're like, he's a God. Right? He's a God. That's just how fickle we are as people. So when we read this opposition, when you hear about these, these things opposing Paul on his journey to Rome, I want to ask you, where does your mind go? And I mean two ways. Are you more inclined to think, wow, Satan is really at work. Like there is an unseen world here taking place and, and it is just opposing Paul. It doesn't want the gospel to go forth to Rome. And man, there is some supernatural opposition taking place. And some of you, that, that's the first thing that comes to your mind or a thought that comes to your mind. And I want to go down that route just a little bit. You see, the seas in scripture, the, the, the bodies of water, they were all uh, places in the Old Testament of chaos, right? They, they just kind of use this as the underworld, this very dark place. Interestingly, in Genesis chapter 1, God hovers over the waters and ultimately forms them according to his purpose and his goal. He said, well, maybe what we're seeing here is Paul fighting the unseen world, right? More than he's fighting the, the natural world, which would be in step with Ephesians 6, 12, right? What does it say? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over their present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Maybe that's what's happening. Maybe it is this supernatural opposition that's taking place. Maybe for some of you, that thought didn't come to mind at all. And the other thought or the other lane is that for you, what took place in all these things, you go, it was a storm. 
It was a shipwreck, right? That happens when, when storms occur. It was a snake. It was a viper. Vipers naturally attach to your hand when you grab a bundle of sticks without looking at them, right? Like that's, that's what takes place. You say it's just a natural happening in a fallen world. You go, well, you think about in the New Testament. What does Jesus do with the seas and the waters? Two particular stories, right? You know this story where he's in a storm with his disciples and his disciples are freaking out. They understand the sea. They understand the chaos of it. And they go, what? Jesus, we're going to die. Do you not care? And I love this picture of Jesus. He stands up. And what does he say to the storm? Be still, right? A literal translation in that, shut up. He tells the storm to shut up. And then his disciples freak out and they go, who is this that the winds and the waves even obey this guy, right? The answer is he's God, okay? Another scene, right? He walks, he's walking out from the coast to his disciples and he treats the waters, right? This, this Old Testament metaphor of chaos and all those things. He treats it like concrete and he walks over it, essentially saying, listen, I'm the God of nature. And to say it this way, supernature, I'm in control of it all. Right? This is the God that Paul has in mind. This is who he follows. This is Jesus, who we are a disciple of, right? So he's over nature. He's over all those things. You say, well, Kyle, which is it? Like, please tell me, which one is it? Is it, is it that, that he's facing unseen spiritual forces, or is it just natural in, un, in, in a broken, fallen world that this is what happens? And the answer is yes. Yes. It is both. Both of those things are absolutely at play here. I don't want us to read any more into the text than there. Luke, Paul, they don't attribute anything that's going on here to the supernatural world. But it is our inclination as people and disciples to pit those against each other when really those two work in tandem. And I would caution you if you fall on one or one side of those coins, right, to understand the other side. To understand that both are at play in this text and also in our life, in our world today. But either way you go. Either way you go, the conclusion, the outcome is still the same. God's rule, God's control, and God's providence remains. Second, Paul remained a prisoner. So Jesus fulfilled his promise. Paul got to Rome, but Paul remained a prisoner. And I said this five weeks ago on providence um, that I struggle with the thought that chained up Paul is more effective for the kingdom of God than church planting Paul. And as I've even thought about that more since that time, um, in this idea of a straight line life that is never promised and does not exist, I saw how these twists and these turns and these ups and these downs, the success and the struggles, the triumph and the tragedies, even in the life of Paul, served to advance the gospel in his testimony more than his freedom did. And there are three ways, so actually this is a five-point sermon, but these are sub-points, so they don't count, okay? So, Paul's testimony, first, was expanded. Like, Paul got to Rome, and even in this text today, he says, I'm going to stand before Caesar. Think about that. The leader of the known world, and the epicenter of the world, where nations would gather, where everything, all power and influence flowed out of Paul gets to be there and proclaim the gospel to Caesar. And he even makes note of this. I forgot this in the 9 a.m., but he even makes note of this in his letter in Philippians that he says that he sends his greetings um, to the, the church and also from people in Caesar's household. What an incredible thought that there are people in Caesar's household because the gospel got to them 
via Paul received Christ and were now disciples. Like the gospel expanded. Why? Because Paul was free, free in preaching and advancing in church playing? No, because he was in prison for six years. His testimony was expanded. And listen, Paul's testimony was not, hey, I'm Paul. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. God saved me. This is my life now. No, his testimony was the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there is a Messiah, there is a Christ, his name is Jesus, who lived perfectly, died innocently, and rose victoriously, and beckoned you to himself. That was Paul's testimony before Caesar. And he used his life as an, as an example of that testimony of God's power and grace to him. So not only was it, was it expanded, his testimony was enriched. Like, so the time that Paul spent on this ship and in prisons that we have talked about before is where I believe Paul accurately and fully sees the sovereignty, providence, and supremacy of Christ more than he could anywhere else. Anywhere else. This is consistent with what James says, right? Where he says, he says, count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials and tribulations of many kinds. Why? He says, because it creates in you a perseverance and a steadfastness. A perseverance and a steadfastness that only comes through what? Wind the verse back. Trial and tribulation. And so hear me, these letters that Paul wrote, these things that Paul was saying, listen, they were undergirded by his time in prison. They were undergirded by these things in this topsy-turvy life that was so weird on the surface. God was going, I'm working something deeper in you. I'm enriching your testimony of who I am. And so hear me, believer, disciple. God is walking with you through this life that seems to be taking a lot of turns and a lot of twists, right? You go, listen, this wasn't my vision of life. I, I was supposed to graduate high school, go to college, get married, right? Get a job, all those things. But my life seems to be taking these unforeseen twists and turns. What is God doing? He is doing something that only he can do and using those to show you himself. The greatest gift of all. Himself, he's deepening, he's enriching your view of who he is and the testimony of the gospel grace that he has given you. And the last one is this, that Paul's testimony through this time, through this voyage, this kind of way to get to Rome, Paul's testimony was authenticated. Why, and you say, well, we trust it because Luke wrote it inspired by the Holy Spirit, but why do we trust Paul's testimony? Like, what, what authenticates this? What well, it authenticates, it's authenticated, if you will, because of how Paul suffered. Because of how Paul walked through all of these different scenarios and situations that he would still say things like Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Who says that? Who says that? Someone who believes it. Somebody who has walked through suffering. Someone who has walked through this curvy life, right, with the detours and the left turns and the right turns, the heights and the lows, and still says, I am sure of this, that God is good and he is faithful and he does accomplish his word every time. That God has never left me, he's never forsaken me, and he's not going to stop now. We sing those words. But for Paul, this is the testimony of his life. This is what authenticated his faith, where he could say things throughout Acts that we have read that just go, that seems so far off. Why does it seem so far off to us? Because maybe for some of us, the realness of our faith has not been authenticated. 
Or he'd say things like Acts chapter 20. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from Jesus. Like that's crazy talk. Unless you believe it. Unless you believe the word of Christ to you. Hear me. Our pseudo-happy suburban lives, and listen, there's nothing wrong with living in the suburbs. I do. You do, probably. Don't authenticate the gospel. People aren't impressed by our disinfected, curated lives. What piques the curiosity of a watching world is when they look in to our lives and they see something radically foreign. They see something outside of ourselves controlling us, right? And I don't mean that in a weird way, but I mean that we have surrendered our whole lives to the allegiance of King Jesus. That our whole lives are lived according to his will and his way. And if he chooses to take us in our lives on this route to get where we know he has promised us, we, with all humility and confidence and joy, say, whatever your will is, God. Whatever it is. See, what gives us confidence in suffering? It's not that we'll make it through. What gives us confidence in suffering as Christians? And hear me, maybe you're not a Christian here and you're just peering in. What gives us confidence in suffering is that Jesus is with us through it all. Is that Jesus is not up here in Rome waiting on Paul just to get there. He's like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, you get out of here. No, he's with him every single step, every turn, every wave crashing on that ship, every latch of a viper. God is there with him and Paul feels it and he knows it. And that's why he says these things. Listen, I'm confident in the Lord and I count my life as nothing compared to what's ahead for me. And Paul's not talking about Rome. Paul's talking about an eternity with Jesus. The hope, the eternal hope of glory. See, what speaks most loudly is we, when we live as a people counter to the cultural script with that prophetic calm that we see in Paul. So I'm not naturally, you see how much I move. Right? I'm not naturally a calm person. The spirit has to do that. You see, what speaks most loudly and authenticates the faith we profess with our lips is a radical generosity and stewardship with our lives. Hospitality. Being a non-anxious presence in a very anxious world. You see, Paul's life and his faith were authenticated. Authenticated in these trials and these tribulations where you could see Christ shine through so clearly. Is that true of your life? Christian, and some of you, you're walking through those moments and those seasons right now. Is this deepening your faith? Or if you be honest, you go, I'm really struggling. Listen, that's okay. You're at the right place. You're, you're at the right moment here. For some of you, you go, I, I don't even know. Like My faith hasn't been tested. There, hasn't, there haven't been these waves and Keep living faithfully, right? Do we go and look for trouble? Do we come? No. <laughs> Do we go look for... No, they would come. But the question is, are you going to trust the Lord? That he is over every detail 
in every dynamic of our lives, and that he's working all things together for good to those who love him and called according to his purpose. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word that is described as a two-edged sword that divides and cuts. God, I pray that your spirit would make these words more than just things on a page or on a screen or sermons. But you would press these words and these stories into our hearts so that we might see your son clearly. God, that we might hear his promises to us, that he will never leave us or forsake us, that he loves us, that he's a plan for us in our lives. But Lord, we know sometimes that plan includes exile. Oftentimes that plan includes hardships and struggles in more valleys than mountaintops. God, forgive me for having such little faith and trust in you in those times and those seasons. God, I pray for us as a church, even corporately, that as we wade through those times and those seasons that inevitably come, you would drive deep by the power of your spirit, the roots of our faith in you, that we would in trials and tribulations and storms, we would see you clearly and it would create a perseverance and a steadfastness. God, we can't conjure that up. We can't manufacture that. God, that only comes from outside of us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us that. You would give us more of your spirit to live steadfast, calm, non-anxious lives in this culture and in this day. God, I pray for those in here who maybe even question your existence and your goodness, your faithfulness. God, I pray that, that you would bring people, true Christians around them, not religious folk, but true disciples of Jesus around them, that it might be a breath of your spirit, a true picture of Jesus to them. God, I pray for us as a church that we would be a faithful witness in a very difficult day. We would have the confidence and resolve of your apostle. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for a community that rallies around one another and bears burdens and comes alongside and loves deeply. Let us do that more and more for your glory and by your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.